Oh, goodness. Whew. Mackenzie Riley, you ever heard your dad say any of those things? Never. Never, never, never. Oh, that's fun. <clears throat> hey, here's a question for you, and I have to, uh, I have to start off in an important way, because Joel Talley in our first service said, On Mother's Day, we extol the virtues of our mothers, but on Father's Day, we tell fathers how terrible they are. That is not my motive here this morning. I, I do hope that in God's providence, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, that I, I do believe that there are some things that are very instructive to us, and I find it to be a terrible coincidence that it happens to be on Father's Day that we talk about this topic. Here's a question for you. When was the last time you were angry? Some of you are going, uh, five minutes before the service started? <laughs> Who taught you how to be angry? Nobody. It kind of comes naturally. Uh, we love it with, uh, with our kids, and, and they're not in here. They came with me to the first service so they could help with the meal. But uh, Colin, when he was three, if we ever did anything that he didn't like, immediately you were mean. You're mean. Eat your veggies. You're mean. It's time for bed. You're mean. Wash behind your ears. You're mean. And we had to tell him, buddy, we're not being mean. These are good things for you to do. You just don't like to do them. So then it was... Uh, uh, you know, he, it was, I, you know, I don't like it. I don't like it. And we told him, we said, you know, people would tell him stuff and he'd say, I don't like you. You know, so his sister would be like, don't beat up your brother. I don't, I don't, I don't like you. Well, we said, you're not allowed to say that to people. That's, that's, that's mean. You're not allowed to tell people you don't like them. So then whenever he would do something bad that he knew he wasn't supposed to do, I'd say, Colin, he'd go, I don't like myself. <laughs> There's a story that's told in, I, <clears throat> I don't have any reason to doubt it, it's, historicity. I didn't find it in a history book, but it illustrates a principle that we're going to look at here this morning about Alexander the Great. And we've never met Alexander the Great. We've never seen pictures of Alexander the Great, uh, but he was by all marks a great man. He was uh, very smart. He was a brilliant tactician. He was a man with great uh, tact and wisdom. He had the charisma to lead men and conquered almost all of the entire known world. Well, one, one evening after a famous battle, they were, of course, victorious, and they were back in their camp, and one of his childhood best friends was one of his most highly regarded generals. Well, as the celebrations go in that time, there was uh, lots of drinking and carousing, and this best friend of his had gotten drunk, and in his stupor, decided to criticize the emperor. Alexander, in a fit of rage, grabbed a spear to hurl at his friend to stick in the wall next to his ear to encourage him to not mock his leadership. But Alexander was trained in the deadly arts, and the spear struck home, and he immediately killed his best friend and one of his most revered generals, and he was very sad. And the truth is, while he had advanced in a portion of leadership that allowed him to command many foreign lands in an army that was second to none. He had not learned the ability to control his anger. And it got the best of him. And so this morning, <clears throat> men, I don't address you because I think you're angry. I think sometimes our gender maybe um, um, expresses that um, emotion, maybe more than the so-called fairer gender. But today in our passage of Scripture, we actually celebrate something that sounds a little bit odd. Jesus gets angry. He's just come into the city, and he's not been in the city very long when he goes to the temple and he tears the place up. 
Now, if any of your young ones acted like Jesus did at church, you'd be horrified. If he started flipping the pews over and throwing hymnals, you'd be like, oh my goodness, we can never go to church again. Yet this episode is celebrated. It's celebrated. Jesus' anger is celebrated. You have never celebrated your own anger or the anger of your family members. Why? Because at this point, Jesus demonstrates how different he is from us because he is both good and angry. For us, oftentimes when we're angry, we couldn't be any further from good at that moment than is possible. So our passage this morning looks at the famous story of the cleansing of the temple. Now many of you know that John Bennett is working as an intern for us this summer, and he has filled up our dumpster back here four or five times all by himself. So this is not the story of John Bennett's um, uh, church internship, taking out the trash and getting rid of damaged goods. Rather, this is Uh, Jesus confronting the straying heart of Judaism. And he is livid. He is incensed. He is anguished and heartbroken over what he sees and he acts in anger. And yet he doesn't sin. So here's the question for you. Martin Luther said, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. You cannot avoid the upwelling of passion that you feel. And that passion is manifests itself in a variety of ways. That passion can be manifested in celebration for a winning team. You know, way to go, home team. Or that passion can be um, expressed negatively in anger. You can't control the passion, but you can control what kind of nest it builds in your life. So how can we learn from Jesus to be good and angry? What makes Jesus' anger so different? And And parents, fathers especially, I think that this is a good lesson for us because, you know, our kids just do what we do. They copy us. So what made Jesus' anger different? <clears throat> we'll be in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, a small passage. If you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, uh, the Pew Bible in front of you, it'll be page 698. We'll begin with verse 12. God's word says this. Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those who were selling doves. The very first thing that we see is that Jesus' anger was tied to a divine mission. A divine mission. There is some debate among New Testament scholars on how many times did Jesus cleanse the temple. Because if you look at the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John has the cleansing of the temple, one of the very first things that Jesus does. Now, Jesus is relatively unknown. He's not made a name for himself. Um, But Matthew's gospel records it as happening in the very last week of Jesus' life. The episodes are different enough in their detail that it is um, right to assume that every time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end, he bookmarked it by cleaning out the temple. That's fascinating to me. Every time he went to corporate worship as an adult in Jerusalem, he cleaned the temple. And so here's the thing. The temple was a place of special affection for him. You remember the story when he was a kid and the the parents made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and then they start to come back and they can't find Jesus because he's at the temple listening to the teachings from the law. And certainly when he began his ministry and most clearly here when he ends, this is where he wants to be. Now, the way Matthew records it, thematically, perhaps not chronologically, it sounds like as soon as he is done riding the donkey, that the donkey drops him off the temple and he walks in. 
According to Mark chapter 11, there's a night that intervenes between it. So Jesus comes in on this day, spends the night, and the next morning comes up and goes directly to the temple. He doesn't go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't go to the Wailing Wall. He doesn't get on the tour bus and take a tour of the Holy City. He goes directly to the temple because that is his mission. He wants to see God's name and God's glory revered. And so with both of these episodes bookending his ministry, at the beginning as a warning and at the end as an act of judgment, uh, Jesus is on a mission to make sure that God is worshipped rightly. And here's the thing that's interesting. They, <clears throat> they see Jesus marching into the temple. And you just have to believe that with the people's misguided assumptions about the kind of ruler that he would be, that he's marching to the temple and he's going to foment some kind of pro-Jewish nationalistic rally and finally expel the Romans from their precious land. And that's not exactly what Jesus does. Instead, he attacks his own countrymen whom he holds responsible for the desecration of the temple. Instead of attacking the Romans, Jesus comes and attacks the very worship center of Judaism. In Jesus' opinion, the temple has been polluted. It has been desecrated. It has been made impure by the priests and by what they have allowed. And as we'll see, Jesus is going to make sure that a change happens, even if it's only temporary, and he is going to make things right again. So the difference between our anger and Jesus' anger is that our anger is usually over something selfish. I can't believe he cut me off. Or what a jerk. Why did he not use his turn signal? That's why God put those on cars, you know. Or my goodness, why did my television programmer programmer drop my favorite channel? And now I need... We get get upset about things that are very self-motivated and Jesus was on a mission to glorify his Father. We see this very clearly in our second point, that his actions were empowered by a divine mandate. They were empowered by a divine mandate. What we see when Jesus comes into the temple is that (laughs) he acts like he owns the place. And you know what? He does. He exercises authority over the temple. When he comes into the temple, he doesn't look around and see what's happening and ask for an appointment with the head dude. He doesn't say, hey, Mr. Chief Priest, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to make an appointment with you. I'd like to have a meeting. Let's, let's get these folks together and let's get the Levites and the priests and the high priests. Let's have a meeting. Jesus didn't ask for permission. He didn't make a request. He just acted with an authority that the people had never seen before. Overturning tables and throwing out, the, throwing out the chairs. This stranger, who is not a regular in worship, shows up and be- acts like he belongs there. That would be like someone that we don't know walking in here and throwing an absolute ruckus. You know, the deacons and the ushers would tackle him, you know. I mean, like, what would happen if somebody did this in our worship service? And yet Jesus comes in and he exercises this authority because in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, when he is questioned by the religious leaders, Jesus says, hey, listen, you swear by the temple, something, someone greater than the temple is here, pointing to himself. The temple is for the worship of God. Therefore, Jesus exercises authority over it because he is God. Now, here's a couple things that are really interesting for you that are like me, a little bit of a Bible nerd. It says when Jesus got there, the word they use specifically in English is that he drove out the people who were the money changers. Uh, The word in Greek for to drive out is ex balo, ex to out, ball to throw. 
um, exbalo, exbalin uh, in this passage. This is terribly interesting. The word exbalo or exbalin is the exact same word that is used when Jesus casts demons out of people. So here he comes to the heart of Jewish worship and he has to exorcise these money changers and dove sellers in the same way that he has to cast demons out of people who are demon-possessed. Isn't that fascinating to think about? The, the words are not used on accident. And so he does this, and I love this because the word for overturned is katastrepsin, which is the word from which we get catastrophe. And so Jesus walks into the temple and he creates a scene. It's not like he comes over and goes, push. I mean, it's stuff's flying everywhere. Coins are jingling. Birds are flying. It's a mess. And so he creates a catastrophe with the tables. He overturns the tables and he throws over the seats or the cathedras. That sound like anything? The cathedral? They're big, ornate seats because the people are making money by fleecing the people who are coming to the temple for uh, the Holy Week. You understand a little bit of this because uh, if you've ever been to a professional football game or professional baseball game, you've ever bought a hot dog, you know it costs 25 cents, but you have to take out a home equity line of credit to be able to buy a full meal at a baseball game. Why? Because they know you're going to show up and you're going to want to eat something. And so when the population would swell for the Passover, they would say, hey, listen, um, you need a perfect sacrifice. And if you travel 200 miles here with your goat and you get here and you find out it's not good enough, don't bring your goat. Leave your goat at home and buy one of the ones on, you know, um, you know, Samuel's used goat lot here in the temple, and we'll have one ready-made for you that's already approved. You'll just pay a premium for it. They were fleecing people. They were charging exorbitant amounts because they knew they could get away with it. <clears throat> and here's the picture that I think is so pretty. Last week, when Jesus came into the uh, city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, we saw him as the fulfillment of prophecy. Here, We don't see him so much as a prophet as we do as the perfect priest who is cleansing defilement and healing a temple that has been made sick by its leaders and the people who worship there. Later on, we'll see that Jesus heals people well. He was the perfect prophet or the fulfillment of prophecy, and now he is the perfect priest cleansing defilement. Mark chapter 11, and their recounting of the cleansing of the temple, said that there was a um, habit that people would have. Like if they come in the gate this way, and this is the temple area, and there are stores over there, you know, they'd carry their bundle or their bushel of whatever, and they would cut through the temple court to get to their place of business. According to Mark chapter 11, Jesus said, this is not a drive through for your convenience. We're not going to have that. I'm not going to stand by and allow something that should be consecrated to be desecrated simply because it's easier for you to get from point A to point B. No, you come to the temple to worship, not to cut through to get to your place of business quicker. I will not allow contempt for the sanctity of the temple. When he gets there, he's very angry at what he sees. Uh, What the temple has become, the holy has been made profane. And instead of being a place of reverence and prayer, what has happened to the temple, it's become a combination of a marketplace, a stockyard, and a bank where you can buy and sell and change your money. And Jesus is angry, but at this point, he is not sinful. It's very interesting because Jesus never, never strikes no man, but he certainly messes with people's property. I mean, you can see the birds flying and the coins rolling. He rearranges the furniture, 
But again, there is this huge difference between his anger and our anger. He is indignant because God's glory is being mocked. He is not doing this out of selfish or self-righteous motivation. He is concerned for the glory of God. And the point of application that I would make at this point, you would think if we're talking about anger, you know, the, 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 the big, bold-lettered application that we would have is don't be angry. You know, we're Christians. We're supposed to be good boys and girls, so don't ever be angry. That is about as far from the point of application that I'm going to make. The point of application I'm going to make is that you aren't nearly angry enough. You're not concerned about the glory of God. You might get brave enough to post something on Facebook about your opinion about something. And, and we will complain, but we will not proclaim. And guys, that's a problem. We, we, are com- we will complain about the price of gas, but we, we, we will not intervene on our neighbor's behalf who we know is going to hell. With all of the political correct mumbo-jumbo about all of the mess that's happening in our world, and in my own home state of Florida and everything that's happened in Orlando, what I, what I don't hear people talking about is the tragedy that, what, 49, 48? People died and went to hell last week. People are using this to say, oh, it's Christian's fault, or it's this fault, it's this. And we're, we're, we're escaping the gravity that by this atrocity, those people no longer have a chance to repent and believe the gospel. And we have to remember that there are people like that all around us. Because it doesn't matter what flavor of sinner you are, we're all sinners. And apart from proclaiming the gospel, people aren't going to be saved. So friends, we're not angry enough. Sure, we're angry about all kinds of personal things. But do we care for the glory of God? Jesus did. And that's what makes his anger different. We see this especially in our third point. Jesus, his anger is specifically informed by his allegiance to Scripture. Look at verse 13 with me. It says this, Jesus went in and he overturned the tables and the chairs of those selling doves, and he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Jesus actually mashes together two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 56, 7, which says specifically that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And yet, as we'll see here in just a second, at the very point of the temple where the nations are allowed to come, there was a concentric circle of holiness from the most holy place to the holy place, to the court of the men, to the court of the women, to the court of the Gentiles. Well, guess where all the commerce took place? in the court of the Gentiles, at the point where people who are interested in God can come in the hopes that someone will talk to them about how to know God, they've set up all these tables and all this business so that their seeking God is interrupted by the busyness of the prophet motive. Where they come to perhaps hear from a prophet, they are interrupted by the seeking of prophet. And so Isaiah 56, 7 says this is supposed to be a house of prayer and we've turned it into a house of prophet. And then from Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11, he talks about how the temple has been turned into a den of thieves. And specifically in that context, write that passage down, Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11, because it talks about something that is deadly serious that we have to face today. That in Jeremiah's day, people were content to live unholy lives, but they would go to church to get assurance that God loved them. 
Right? Is, there, is there a problem with this line of thinking? Friend, listen. True or false? God is love. True or false? True. But for a disobedient Christian, you should never have any assurance of God's love. Because if you're living disobediently, you should have the fear of God to produce guilt in your life. Guilt's not entirely bad if it's a guilt that leads you to repentance. And they weren't interested in repenting. They were interested in living however they wanted, but still having the assurance that God loved them. So these were smug worshipers who worshiped him with their lips, but yet their hearts were far away from him. And he says, in this sense, you are taking my temple and turning it into a den of thieves. Because yeah, they'll tithe the, the spices, but they won't tithe their money. They'll do this, but they won't do this. They're playing a game. And Jesus is heartbroken as he quotes these scriptures, thinking about how these people thought that they could buy God's favor by living however they wanted, but showing up for church. That there was something that just happened magically, that as they continued in their old way of life, that they could live unconverted lives and show up to church, and that makes them converted. They had forgotten that their mission as the people of God, which is certainly true for us, their mission is not only grace, but it is judgment. Because we cannot talk about the free offer of eternal life without warning people about the danger of hell. And just like, I don't have a logo on my shirt, but a black logo on a black shirt doesn't make any sense. You're not going to see it. There has to be a contrast in order for the logo to be seen. And in the same way, God's logo is grace given to us through Christ. But that the, the purity and the bright glory of this grace is only made visible in the contrast to our sinfulness. And so our mission is not just grace. There is judgment that comes with that. To tell people that they need to be saved means that there's something not good that is going on. And when we forget judgment and only grace, then our church becomes a hideout for thieves rather than a house of God. And this is not the point of the passage. But I think that this is a valid application. I think our churches today are very in danger of becoming a den of thieves when it comes to church membership. Friends, listen, there is no way that we are a church of more than 350 or 400 people. And yet we have 750 people on our church roll, some who have never been to this church in 40 years, who have probably denied the faith, are living disobediently to God, and yet we endorse them by considering them members in good standing. We've become a place where people can pay their allegiance to God by official membership, yet their lack of care for the church, which means their lack of care for God, means that we are endorsing them, robbing God of the glory that he deserves from every person's obedience. Friends, this is a serious charge because we've been so concerned with being nice that we've ceased to be biblical. We've ceased to allow God to be the king of his church because we don't want to offend anyone. And listen, our job is not to judge someone and telling them they're a Christian or not. God determines that. Our job is to say, You don't ever come, you don't ever serve, you don't ever pray, you don't ever listen to the word. From our perception, things are not healthy for you because we believe that Christians are gonna show up at church. We believe that Christians are gonna give up 
five nights of their week to serve at vacation Bible school to help kids out. And so here very clearly, there are many of you that are here today that are pondering church membership. We want church membership to mean something. We want church membership to mean that you're following God and that you're joining together with us together to extend the kingdom of God. Not that you have your name on the list and that you're free to live however you want. That's, that is what has made the church so completely apathetic today that we are content to rob God of the glory that he is due. And yet the Bible says very clearly, let us not forsake assembling together. And we have people that have forsaken assembling together for decades and we've never done anything about it. And friends, there's a shame that is involved in that. And we need to own that up and we need to be obedient to God. I find it so repulsive that in the courtyard where they were supposed to be engaging with visitors, the court of the Gentiles, that that was the place where all of this commotion came. It was so filled with commotion that instead of being a house of prayer, you couldn't pray because you couldn't get your thoughts together. There's so much busyness and business taking place. So instead of experiencing communion with God, they ex- experienced the uh, interruption and the commotion of commerce. People profiting off of each other and taking advantage of one another. For us to be faithful in our proclamation, not only is Jesus the merciful and modest king, but he is the mighty and awful judge. And we are not faithful in our proclamation unless we proclaim both. And this becomes clear to us as we see Jesus declare his allegiance to Scripture. And he is willing to be mean on purpose for the higher calling of glorifying God. And saying what we don't like to hear, that the way that we're doing things is not glorifying to the Father. Now, I'm, I'm glad that the story doesn't stop there. Because we talk about Jesus having a divine mission and having the authority, the mandate to do what he needs to do. And uh, we've talked about his allegiance to the scriptures, calling people out on what they, what they have to say. And it's a very hard passage to talk about. We can see very clearly how Jesus' anger operates on a different plane than our anger operates. But on our fourth point, we see something that is very beautiful and brings a balance to this entire picture. In verse 14, we see Jesus' angry condemnation balanced by his care and compassion. Verse 14, it's quick. And if you blink, you'll miss it. Listen to what it says. So he just gets done quoting scripture. You've turned it, it's supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex and he healed them. Jesus has just condemned all the stuff that's happening in the temple complex. There is this commercialism, this buying and selling. And pay attention, he didn't just go after the sellers, he went after the buyers too. So I said this in the first service. You know, we've got a, a, a lot of uh, our senior adults are in the first service and they can remember a time when businesses weren't open on Sunday. You know, they remember a time when you couldn't do, sports leagues didn't operate and stores weren't open and it was supposed to be a day of rest and yet every single one of them is going to go to a restaurant on a Sunday afternoon and go grocery shopping. It's the buyers and the sellers that are both confronted by Jesus. So be consistent. If you're going to fuss about it, then don't do anything on Sunday. Follow your convictions consistently. And we're not under law the way that the Old Testament was. That's just a point that I think is important to see. Jesus here condemns the buying and selling, and in its place, he says, let me give you an example of what should be happening in the temple. I'm going to heal people. I'm going to demonstrate care and compassion. 
And it's so beautiful. We've seen his righteous indignation, but now to see his gentle compassion. And this is the only miracle done in Jerusalem, according to the Gospel of Matthew. This is the only miracle to take place in the temple. And I love the way it says it, because literally, when it talks about what Jesus has done for them, he has uh, etherapusened them. He's therapied them. He has made them whole. He has restored balance to their life. He has fixed what was deficit. He has restored them and made them whole. Friends, has that happened for you at church? Has Jesus made you well? See, instead of all the business and the busyness of life, all of the administration and the spreadsheets and the depth charts and all this kind of stuff, at its heart, what is supposed to happen here? People are to be made well. And our job as the priesthood of our Lord and God is to help people be made well. Because you know what's not going to happen? They're not going to be made well on their own by themselves or going to a therapist. The only therapist who's going to do them good is the great physician. And he shows this here in a striking contrast to the commercialism that he has condemned. Jesus is not just exercised authority over the temple, but here he exercises authority over disease and he heals them. So how does the story end? Jesus has come and he's cleared the temple and he's talked about scripture and he's proven the mandate, the authority that he has and the mission that he's at on. How does the story end? Well, here's how the story ends. Everybody repents. There's a mass crowd that comes to the altar and the city is converted. Woohoo! Is that how the story ends? Sadly, no. The story ends with Jesus indeed receiving praise. But in the very same breath, we see Jesus also anticipating rejection. Man, two strange words to put together. Praise, rejection. But look at how the story ends in verses 15 through 17. It says this. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus said, Yes. Yeah. I hear. And then Jesus asked them, Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. And then he left them he went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. Here Jesus demonstrates authority not only over the temple, not only over disease, but authority over people by receiving the praise of these children. He says, hey, I am who I am. I'm glad to receive their praise because they recognize who I am. And in a weird kind of way, the children prove to be the role models in opposition to the religious leaders. The children get it right. Uh, The religious leaders who should have understood but are offended are wrong. And the kids, what do they do? Where did, you see what the kids said? They were saying Hosanna to the son of David. Where did the kids learn that phrase specifically? Look back just a couple verses to chapter 29, verse 9. 
is Jesus is entering the city. It says that there were great crowds shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These kids are simply repeating what they have heard. Repeating what they've heard. And on this Father's Day, dads, if your kids repeated what they heard from you, would it be praise to God? Would it be self-centered idolatry for your own convenience? The Lord, in this scripture passage that Jesus quoted, makes very clear that he will never leave himself without a witness. God has the, has the power and the ability to make rocks have mouths and to cry out if we will cease to give God worship. And so whether it's making the rocks cry out or making donkeys talk or making children praise, God will not leave himself without witness if we as adults and as parents will not worship God rightly. And so the praise of these children is a powerful contrast to the umbrage of the religious leaders who should have known better. So what are our points of application as we conclude? I'd say that there are three as I've thought through this passage, and I think that they are certainly appropriate to fathers on Father's Day, but I think that they're appropriate to all of us. Number one, I ask the question, uh, dads, for you to consider, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? That is, at its heart, what made Jesus' anger different than ours. Because we're passionate about our rights, and we're passionate about our conveniences. And Jesus, he was passionate about his father. What are you passionate about? If you are a man, I can say this with some authority because I are one. I know you have probably dealt with anger at some point over your life. Are you angry about the right things? Or are you really angry about stuff that's really petty? In the, in the, the grand scheme of life, are you angry? Are you passionate for the glory of God? Number two, like these people in the first century, have you turned church into something other than the worship of God and the service of your fellow man? You know, the highest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And there is such a temptation to turn church into a social club and to forget that it is about the worship of God. And one of the ways that we worship God is by doing ministry to each other in serving in our community. And one of the sure ways to not have anybody show up is to say we're going to go out and we're going to share the most important thing that we can. We're going to share the gospel. So come back tonight. And it'll be me and three deacons. Because we've forgotten what church is about and we've turned it into something self-focused and convenient. Have you turned church into something that it's not supposed to be? And number three, Consider the worship of the kids. I don't know that their worship is proper because, again, let's just play along with what the kids are doing. They are repeating what they heard yesterday. Their parents said, Hosanna to the Son of David. So the kids today say, Hosanna to the Son of David. And here's the tragedy in that because at the end of this week that is recorded in Scripture, those same parents will chant, Crucify Him. What do you think the, the, the children will do? They will always, God has designed it this way, follow 
the example that their parents set for them. And here's the thing. Not just for dads, but for moms. There is an important and very high calling that we have of setting the example of worshiping God rightly. And we want God to dip us in the dye so that every part of us is colored with Jesus. We don't want any nook or cranny or crack in our life to not reflect Jesus. And yet we tend to hide those things and kind of keep them to ourselves. And the joy and the fullness and the awesomeness of the Christian life comes when we turn those things over to God and say, God, I'm going to feel passion. Help me to feel it in the right way. God, I'm going to be tempted to turn church into something that it's not supposed to be. Help me to be focused on the right thing. God, I got little ones that maybe they're mine, maybe they're yours, that I have the opportunity to be a role model to. Help me for the glory of God to set the right example, not just in my anger, but in my worship and in all things. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are so grateful for your example. We are humbled at the pettiness of our anger. God, help us not to be so little that dumb things ruin our testimony. Help us to be concerned for your glory more. Help us to be concerned for our witness more. Help us to be concerned about your church more. Help us to be concerned about the example that we set more. Help us to want to build strong families, not just as an institutional logo, but as a life mission. God, because you are great and you are worthy of our obedience and our praise. I pray today, God, that as men, specifically on this day, that you'll make us men enough to confess our sins. And where our anger has been unrighteous and unholy, that as your spirit pricks our conscience, that you'll give us the ability that just as our anger has been public, so our repentance will be public to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, where we have not glorified you. And so God, you tell us to act like men, to be strong and to courageous, to stand firm and immovable. God, that's only good if we're standing in the right place. If we find ourselves standing in a place that's not glorifying to you, give us the grace to repent and stand where you would have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.